everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Political Futures Podcast. This is Kerwin Swint. I'm a political science professor at Kennesaw State University in Atlanta. I'm an administrator here and your host. Um, this is the podcast that tries to make some sense of this crazy, topsy-turvy political year. Um, it's been quite a presidential election year already, and we've been here following it from uh, March of this year, uh, late winter, early spring. I thought this would be a good time for a State of the Race podcast. Uh, this is August 26th, and the presidential campaign is taking shape. It has been taking shape all summer. And as we are getting through the conventions and heading towards the debates, it's, it's really starting to take shape, and we're getting closer to a time where um, you know, we could see some, some definite themes emerge from the presidential election. The Democrats had their convention last week, um, and of course it was a virtual convention. There are no physical meetings. And it was interesting to see, and it, it continues to be interesting to see, how the Republicans uh, follow with their virtual convention. Um, it's quite a challenge, as, as one can imagine. Everything has to be online. Nothing or very little can be physical, uh, hardly any crowds, and any crowds there have to be spaced out. So it's a real logistical and communications challenge and one that the parties have never had to face before. This is a first, um, as we've seen so many firsts this year. The Democrats pulled it off okay. Um, you know, they, they had some logistical issues. They had some visual and communication challenges, I think. They uh, had a, a diverse set of speakers. They had Democratic Party officials. They had elected officials. They had ordinary citizens. They tried to um, communicate their concerns about the Trump administration, their concerns about policy and the state of the country. Obviously, COVID was a big theme in the Democratic National Convention. They did a reasonably good job of pulling all of that off. Um, you know, these conventions are largely for the party faithful, but they're also aimed at independent swing voters, especially those out there in the battleground states. And so the Democrats wanted to communicate a message of um, Democratic Party energy, um, activism on the issues that matter to people like COVID, um, like civil liberties, the things going on in the country right now. And they did a reasonably good job. Um, much of it was sort of underwhelming. I thought um, some of the speeches were good. Some of the speeches were not so good. They connected uh, on some of the uh, issues. They connected with voters sometimes, but oftentimes not. So I think it was a, a mixed bag. Um, I think the one memorable event from that week was Biden's acceptance speech on Thursday. And I say that because there were such low expectations set for that speech. Not many people expected him to uh, you know, give a, a particularly good speech. He's not known as a good speaker. And, and of course, now uh, he, he's having some challenges in the area of communication and speaking uh, in, in some formats. So the bar was low. Uh, which actually did him a favor because he did just fine. Uh, he gave about a 24-minute speech. Uh, he hit the notes he wanted to hit. He looked reasonably uh, with it and communicative, didn't seem particularly um, out of sorts or anything like that. So did a fine job, did a good job. Uh, and so right away, um, 
surpassed expectations, which is what you want. Anytime you're uh, communicating with people, messaging to people, performing in, of, of any sort, you want to at least meet or hopefully exceed expectations. And so the expectations were so low for this, uh, just reasonably meeting them is a victory uh, for Biden. And it uh, sort of makes Republicans scramble a little bit to continue the argument they have been using, which is Joe Biden is too old, he's having cognitive decline, he's not up to the job, he's not gonna be able to be an effective president. Um, and so the fact that he was able to give a, a reasonably good speech sort of makes that argument harder to sustain. Now, where I think the Democrats fell short in their convention was uh, having a uh, set of policy alternatives that they really could turn to and really could emphasize in their criticisms of Donald Trump uh, and the Republican Party. Now, it, it's always true that when you're the challenger, you have to make a case against the incumbent, and that's what they focused on, and that's what any convention focuses on that's running against an incumbent president, because you have to, that's your job, um, because you're asking the voters to, in effect, fire the incumbent. And they did that, they focused on that, um, but they didn't give the voters, particularly those independent voters out there in some of the swing states, much in the way of uh, specific policy alternatives, new ideas, uh, things that would make uh, the COVID uh, fight go better, run better, um, things about the economy. They talked about economic growth, that Joe Biden would, would stimulate the economy. Uh, but very general, very, uh, very broad outlines, you know, nothing to really sink your teeth into. And I think the, uh, the, the criticisms have been there about uh, the lack of real policy. Uh, and again, you know, their main job is to draw doubts uh, about Donald Trump and criticize Trump, which they did. But they could have done it in a better way, a stronger way, by focusing on some of these real policy alternatives that uh, parties sometimes focus on. Now it's the Republicans' turn, and right away you can see that the Republicans are pretty good, at least the, the Donald Trump Republicans are pretty good uh, at putting on a television show. Not surprising with Trump's uh, history with uh, television programming, um, The Apprentice, obviously. But uh, the Republicans, you have to argue, have done a pretty good job of scripting, uh, completing, uh, engineering, and communicating uh, messages throughout the week. Uh, it's been very photogenic. Uh, there have been no major logistical, technical problems or issues. The timing seems to be uh, very well. The lighting and the photography is engaging. I mean, so, you know, from, from a visual standpoint and a communication standpoint, uh, they've done an excellent job with that. I think you'd have to say better than the Democrats did. Um, but it's a Trump convention and it has all the trappings of, of Trump. Um, you know, he has he broke some conventions where he he appeared in some form or fashion every night of the convention and, and instead of waiting until the last night and making a major speech. So he's been present throughout. They also broke some other conventions um, as far as using the White House uh, to, to have the, the swearing-in ceremonies of, of, of new citizens, uh, the, the pardoning declaration he made, um, uh, and also the, the speech of the First Lady, um, and also the, the appearance uh, by video of the Secretary of State. 
uh, Mike Pompeo, uh, and, and that's uh, never been done before at a political convention either. So for better or worse, they, they broke the mold, they broke some conventions um, in a way that they believe was engaging, exciting, and helped them convey their message and tell their story. Um, a lot of this also is aimed at those independent voters out there in, in the all important swing states. Um, and, and I'll talk about some of those in a minute. Um, and so the Trump message is quite different, obviously. The Republicans wanted to convey a message of success. And not surprisingly, they touted the uh, very strong economic growth uh, for much of the last two to three years, of course, until the COVID lockdown hit, which, which, which cratered the economy. Um, and, and so they, they say that the, they, they are getting back to those policies of strong growth, low taxes, low regulation, which will result in yet another spurt of economic growth. So the Republicans focused very much on the economy, uh, but they also focused on a, a lot of the social issues, too. There was a very strong pro-life speech uh, by someone who used to work for uh, Planned Parenthood. Uh, there were appeals to law and order all throughout the week. Uh, safety, uh, calling out the, the, the violence and some of the protests around the country. And uh, it seems to me a real focus on the suburbs uh, in uh, major American battleground states. Um, the Trump message wants to really focus on those suburban voters, many of whom have been slipping away, especially in states like Georgia, and towards the Democrats. And uh, a real focus on trying to reassure suburbanites, especially suburban women, I think a lot of the messages were aimed at that, uh, that Donald Trump is the person who's gonna make you safe and secure and enable you to, uh, to live your life. Another notable thing the Republicans did in their convention was really focus on diversity, um, having a number of uh, African-American speakers, Latino speakers, um, especially some of the, the, the featured speakers, for example, Herschel Walker from Georgia, uh, who really talked about how Donald Trump is not a racist. I've known him for 37 years, you know. Um, uh, Democrat Vernon Jones from DeKalb County uh, in, in Georgia, and, and some of the other minority speakers. So Republicans trying to send the message that it's not an all-white party. They're open to uh, diversity in some important ways. Um, and so really trying to uh, communicate that message. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina uh, gave a terrific speech, one of the best convention speeches I think I've ever seen uh, in a way that really introduced him to a large segment of, of the country. Uh, so did well, um, and that sort of sets the stage. The political conventions uh, is a major phase of the presidential campaign that sets the stage for the sprint from September to Election Day. And it is a sprint because it's only uh, a couple of months. It'll pass very quickly. We've got the debates coming up, uh, and that will, uh, that, that will rearrange the, the chairs on the deck in, in, in some ways. Um, or not, we'll see. We'll see if the debates are uh, impactful or not. Uh, sometimes debates are extremely important. Um, and, and can be crucial, and, and sometimes they're not. A um, couple of examples here. Uh, debates were crucial in a year like uh, 2000, for example, between Bush and Gore. Uh, after those conventions, Gore had a lead on Bush, and uh, a lot of analysts thought, well, uh, Gore's probably going to win. And in fact, he had a lead for, for much of the post-convention period 
what seemed to change that were those debates. Uh, and, and again, we get into the expectations game because expectations for George W. Bush in those debates against Al Gore were pretty low. Al Gore was considered to be a master debater, very intelligent, very fast on his feet, uh, aggressive uh, in the mold of uh, his predecessor, Bill Clinton. George W. Bush, on the other hand, was not seen as a particularly good communicator. Um, you know, and some of that was related to his father, George Herbert Walker Bush, being a notoriously weak communicator. Um, so expectations were not very high for Bush. And in the actual debates, he exceeded those low expectations. He held his own with Al Gore. Al Gore lost his cool a number of times, overreacted to certain situations during those debates. Um, Bush kept his cool pretty much, was able to hold his own in debating issues with Al Gore. And so really uh, made an impact for himself, changed a lot of minds, persuaded a lot of independent voters. And, and I think it helped uh, George W. Bush win that election. So that's an example of a debate that, that really mattered in, in some important ways. You could also go back to uh, 1988 between uh, Bush's father, uh, Bush 41, and Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis. Some, some moments in those debates uh, were crucial, uh, or you could see them as missed opportunities really for Dukakis, not able to capitalize and, and really galvanize attention on his candidacy where Bush could in those debates. One example of a presidential debate that really had very little impact on the outcome of the race, I think, was 2016. Um, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton had three debates. The conventional wisdom, at least, was that Clinton won all three of them. Um, at least that's the media's interpretation of the outcome of those debates. Viewers at home may have felt differently. Um, but my analysis was that you know Donald Trump did okay. He was, was aggressive. Uh, he uh, communicated what he wanted to. But Hillary Clinton, of course, was no slouch. She's been around a long time. She knows how to carry herself. And, you know, she, she did a pretty good job in those debates. I think maybe she took Trump a little too lightly. Um, but, you know, if Clinton won those debates, it certainly had no impact on the outcome of the election. Um, and so that's an example of one that apparently did not matter all that much. Another thing to focus on is the polls, the polling in uh, the presidential campaign of 2020. There's been a lot of focus on that. Polls come out almost every day. And uh, after the summer uh, George Floyd protests, uh, the, uh, the, the political ramifications that came from, from that, Biden uh, has had a pretty solid lead, at least in national polls, most of the national polls. He, is averaging about a, a uh, eight or nine, or in some cases a 10 point lead over Trump nationally. Um, and, and so that's a lot of the focus that political analysis has been, uh, been giving us is that Biden has a lead. Um, but what's more important is really the uh, state by state battleground polling data. That's what you really wanna focus on. And I say that because the national polling can, can be helpful. It can give you information on the relative, relative popularity of the candidates, trends. Um, but we don't have a national election in this country. Uh, there's no uh, national vote. It's 51 different statewide votes, uh, and the 51st being D.C., of course. So that's what you really need to focus on. You need to focus on the statewide numbers, the statewide data, uh, or... You know, especially the battleground polls, and 
And so this year, the battlegrounds, uh, of course, are the main three being Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Those are the three main ones to look at because those are the three states that Donald Trump was able to flip in 2016. Those were normally blue states, Democratic states. The last time Pennsylvania had voted for a Republican candidate for president, for example, was uh, 1988, a uh, very long time. And um, you, you could say much the same thing about Michigan and Wisconsin, very Democratic states. So uh, Trump won the presidency in 2016 because he was able to flip those states and uh, get those electoral votes in his uh, corner. So the question has always been, going into 2020, can he do it again? Can Donald Trump carry those traditionally Democratic Party states again in 2020? That's always been uh, a large part of the question. Now, aside from those three states, you also have some others that are pretty important. Florida, for example. Florida is definitely a swing state. It has made the difference in several of our presidential elections. Of course, the most notorious was 2000 when, when Bush narrowly carried Florida after a, a prolonged and well-publicized constitutional crisis. Um, and so Florida looms large. Uh, it, it's an interesting state because there's a huge Democratic presence in, in much uh, of the state, particularly South Florida. And there's a strong Republican presence in much of the rest of the state, from Central Florida up to certainly Northern Florida. Um, so it's really a, a, a variable kind of state um, and an important one. So, you know, if Donald Trump does not carry Florida, there's no way he can possibly win. So he, that's a must win for him. Um, he has some advantages in the state be, uh, due somewhat to the, uh, the Cuban-American vote, which is very strongly Republican. And, and I do believe Cuban-Americans in Florida will be definitely motivated to vote against Joe Biden this year. Um, so that'll be one to watch. Uh, assuming Trump carries Florida, then, like I said, he's got to carry some of the rest of these. Um, North Carolina is another swing states. Uh, Trump carried North Carolina in 2016. He, he, uh, he really needs to carry it again or, or face some trouble. And then there are some others. Um, Colorado, um, Arizona. Arizona is one of the key swing states that uh, voters are looking at. Republicans normally carry Arizona. Uh, but Trump has been behind in the polls there. Actually, Trump has been behind in the polls in a number of these battleground states, which is what has been giving Democrats the, the confidence uh, that Biden is going to win in November uh, and has been giving some of the media the narrative that Biden is ahead and, and Trump is behind and is likely to lose. Um, but as we all know, those numbers can change. Um, if you look at the battleground polls in 2016 at this time, in late August, um, Hillary Clinton was ahead in, I believe, every one of those battleground polls. If you look at the averages, you know, the beauty of some of the voter data or poll data we have these days is that you can average them up and get a pretty good feel for where the trends are heading. And so I usually look at the Real Clear Politics average, the RCP average, which is historically very accurate. And, and get a pretty good idea. So, um, you know, like I said, in 2016, Clinton was winning in those battleground states. Yet on election night, Donald Trump won most of those states and uh, was elected president. Will the same thing happen in 2020? Right now, 
Biden has a lead in most of those battleground states. Now, it's, a, it's not a huge lead. In fact, it's smaller than the lead that Hillary Clinton had at the same time in 2016. So, um, you know, polls don't always tell the whole story. They're only a snapshot in time. Polls are heavily dependent on the modeling that the polling company uses to predict actual turnout in that state on election day. So, you know, they're not perfect science by any means. They're snapshots in time. They can show you trends, um, but they're, they're not a crystal ball. Uh, they're no guarantee. Uh, so Republicans believe that Trump will once again uh, overcome uh, the, these polling uh, deficiencies and, and win on election day. And we'll see. Right. Uh, so issues in the presidential campaign. It's been a different kind of year. You know, normally the issues come down to things like uh, health care, the economy, foreign policy, sometimes the environment. And of course, this year, those issues are still important and they're still in play. And, and both candidates have to uh, appeal to voters based on those issues. But it's been overridden this year by a couple of developments. Obviously, the global pandemic we're all dealing with, COVID-19, has changed everything. It's, it's literally changed the world uh, in some very negative ways. But it's really turned the presidential campaign upside down. As I said earlier, it cratered the economy, the lockdown cratered the economy, taking away a major selling point uh, that Donald Trump was going to have going into this fall election. Um, and so the response to the COVID-19 crisis has been the focus of much of our attention this year uh, relative to President Trump, how he has handled it, how his administration has prepared the country, prepared the states, worked with the states to protect the public. And obviously that's been a major attacking point by the Democrats all year and, and by Joe Biden in this campaign. So the Democratic playbook is to blame the crisis, not the virus, but blame the crisis in America on the Trump administration's lack of handling of, of this healthcare crisis. Uh, some have gone so far as to lay the blame for hundreds of thousands of COVID deaths at the feet of Donald Trump um, and say he mishandled the crisis um, and has cost us the lives of many of our citizens. Republicans obviously uh, recoil at, at that and say that's ridiculous, that's offensive, it's horrendous politics. Um, they, in fact, and, and at the convention, they have made this point that the Trump administration handled the COVID crisis as well as anyone could, as well as any other national government has throughout the world. Um, you know, of course, President Trump says he, he shut down uh, travel from China, uh, followed quickly by a shutdown of travel uh, from Europe and making case that that really limited the, the damage, potential damage and loss of life and infection that uh, could have been the case. And further, they argue that they mobilized uh, the states to be able to get PPE, be able to get ventilators, uh, be able to get mobile hospitals in place. So uh, Republicans counter that actually they've done a, a pretty good job of handling a global pandemic uh, at its worst, the likes of which uh, you know, we have virtually never seen in this country. So that's going to be a real battle of perspectives, uh, whether Trump uh, handled COVID-19 poorly or, or as they say, they, they handled it as well as anyone could have been expected to. 
The other thing really turning the race upside down has been the protests and demonstrations, sometimes violent, uh, after the murder of George Floyd uh, in um, Minneapolis. Um, it's been a, a touch point. It's been a, a crisis. Um, it has led to widespread protests in cities throughout the country. Um, and unfortunately, it has led to uh, violence in a number of cities as well, especially the, the West Coast cities, but also other places like uh, Chicago, Washington, D.C., uh, and uh, more recently in, in suburban Milwaukee. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's a crisis. It, it's a problem. It's, it, it leads to some horrific images on television when you see um, you know, bombs being thrown, when you see people being shot, uh, when you see citizens attacking government facilities, police departments, um, and it's caused a lot of uh, conflict between Republicans and Democrats. Uh, and obviously it has bled into the presidential campaign. So how will that affect the vote? Well, the Trump administration, the Trump campaign uh, is, is quick to point their fingers at Democratic officials, governors, mayors, but also uh, Joe Biden himself, uh, Kamala Harris, for not condemning this violence, not uh, acting or speaking out in a way to try and stop this violence. but. Uh, in some cases, according to Republicans, seeming to approve of it um, and uh, in, in a political way that you know, Republicans believe the Democrats are trying to destabilize the country uh, in, uh, in their quest to uh, turn Donald Trump out of office. Uh, the Biden campaign, on the other hand, is criticizing the Trump administration for overuse of uh, force in a lot of these confrontations. Um, in uh, overemphasizing police tactics, police hardware, police munitions, those sorts of things. So there's a real battle uh, for opinion on the law and order question, the law and order issue. Uh, Trump and the Republicans believe they have the upper hand on this politically and that it will uh, benefit them in some of these key states. Um, the Biden campaign believes just the opposite, that the chaos, the violence will work to his favor and, uh, and help him win places like Pennsylvania and even Florida. And, and so we'll see. The other big issue, uh, and who would have thought that uh, a lot of the presidential campaign would focus on the U.S. Postal Service? You know, this is one of the things that uh, no one uh, could anticipate, but it has to do, of course, with mail-in voting, uh, which uh, we, we really haven't dealt with as a country before because we haven't had to because there's been no global pandemic before. And of course, the COVID crisis is the reason that Democrats are saying that there really needs to be uh, a focus on uh, millions and millions of ballots mailed to registered voters, whether they ask for them or not, uh, because it's going to be much safer to people for people to vote by mail instead of going to uh, polling places, standing in line, and potentially spreading uh, the virus. So that's the, the rationale for the mail-in voting. Um, of course, Republicans uh, led by the Trump campaign believe that this is really uh, a plot. Uh, this is really a, an effort to make it easier to uh, have voter fraud and to uh, have uh, fraudulent ballots, miscounted ballots, um, in, in some of these high-volume polling places. So there's a real difference of opinion here. Uh, Republicans believe there, there's not a need for this kind of massive mail-in voting. 
uh, Donald Trump himself has said that absentee ballot voting is fine. We already have it. It's in place. And the difference is the voter themselves asks for the ballot to be mailed to their residence and they turn it in. Um, and that what the Democrats are pushing is a, is a widespread, massive mail-out of ballots, regardless of whether they're requested or not. Um, Republicans saying many of whom will go to people that aren't even registered to vote anymore, uh, people that have since moved and uh, they're sending it to the wrong address. Some people, in, in, in a number of cases, have died. Um, and so the, the question is, what happens to those ballots? It would be too easy, they suggest, for ballots like that to be manipulated, uh, to be uh, fraudulently returned, and affect the outcome of the vote. Uh, Republicans point to places like Philadelphia, for example. And again, Pennsylvania is a huge swing state, could swing the election. Um, and Philadelphia is a, is a huge uh, area that is run by Democratic Party officials. So the fear there is that a lot of these ballots floating around, uh, you know, let's say, for example, that they have to count all these millions of mail-in ballots so you don't have a winner on election night, right? Or you don't have a winner several days later. Maybe you get to November 8th, November 9th, November 10th. All the ballots haven't been counted yet. Well, how do you guarantee there's not monkey business going on? How do you guarantee that some of these ballots aren't being fraudulently voted or counted? Uh, so it's a real question. And, uh, you know, I look at it as a problem of logistics. The fact is that most states don't have the staff. They don't have the logistics. They don't have the training to be able to handle massive mail-in balloting. Georgia certainly doesn't. So you could see that being a logistical problem and, and taking days or maybe even weeks to get all these ballots counted. And uh, you know, heaven only knows how many lawsuits would be filed in those days and weeks. So that's, that's become an issue. Another factor in the campaign is the personalities of the candidates. Um, and there's no question that presidential campaigns are um, you know, they're television campaigns, they're visual campaigns, uh, television ads, uh, the debates, the conventions. Um, and so personality means something. Uh, performance means something. Um, presidential candidates who are able to perform well, uh, give a good speech, perform well on television, normally have an edge over those that, that can't or don't. Um, and, and so that comes into play. The personalities, um, you know, Donald Trump, for example, um, is not, oh, let's say it, he's, he, sometimes he's not a very likable person. <laughs> a lot of people say that's a major problem with Donald Trump is, is that he, he, he's mean, he's gruff, he criticizes people, he's, he's way too sensitive, you know, he lashes out, right, uh, that sort of thing. You can see this uh, when he's tweeting and he has uh, what you call mean tweets, you know, all the time. So. You know, his public persona is negative in a lot of ways because, you know, people, a lot of people generally say, well, he's kind of a hard person to like, right? He's not really likable. Um, that's no small thing. Um, voters, uh, particularly independent voters, they want to be able to like the person in the Oval Office. They want to be able to admire them, listen to them, put up with them um, over four years or certainly over eight years. Um, and so that's something that uh, I think Trump has to overcome a little bit is his, uh, in some ways, negative personal image. Uh, Joe Biden really doesn't have it any better. Uh, he, he doesn't have the, the image of being mean uh, or uh, uh, overly sensitive. 
Um, but he does have the image of someone who has been around for a very, very long time. He's been around for 47 years in politics, um, has run for president twice before. He, he has had uh, numerous uh, ethical lapses in the past, a couple of scandals, uh, the plagiarism scandal in 1988 being a notable one, um, and also being uh, the, the vice president to Barack Obama. He's had to be responsible or he's being held responsible uh, for some of the uh, you know, more negative outcomes from the Obama years. So, um, you know, add to that the questions about Joe Biden's age and ability, his cognitive ability right now. So he's got some things to, to overcome uh, as well. Um, and like I said, he, he took a step in doing that at his convention speech. Um, if he overcomes the low expectations held for him in the debates, he could uh, even more overcome those, uh, those vulnerabilities. Um, so uh, we'll see how they perform. There will be something, uh, you know, to come of that. Then you get to the vice presidential candidates, Mike Pence and Kamala Harris. Now, normally, most voters don't vote for a presidential candidate based on who their vice president is. You know, as, as much as we like to, uh, you, know, you know, cheerlead for certain uh, contenders to be vice presidents, um, you know, it's a, sort of a, a parlor game about who a presidential candidate will pick, and we certainly had that leading up to the Kamala Harris election. Uh, but the fact is, it really, historically at least, doesn't really impact the vote that much. Uh, who the vice president is uh, is just not big a factor in most voters' minds. Now, uh, Joe Biden being 77 years old, he would turn 78 uh, next year, uh, and there are questions about his health and abilities. That might change a little bit. Uh, and so the expectation is, for example, that whoever is Joe Biden's vice president will probably be uh, the leading contender to be president in 2024. So I think there's a widespread assumption that Joe Biden will only serve one term. And so who his vice president is this time is a consequential um, answer. You know, uh, it, it, it matters who that vice president is. Um, and so that's what made the, the, the Joe Biden vice presidential search uh, such an issue, because that person might be actually quite important. Uh, so the fact that it's Kamala Harris uh, means something to a lot of Democratic voters, a lot of uh, women voters, uh, minority voters. Uh, of course, Republicans like to focus on her combative tone, her dismissive tone, uh, her record as a prosecutor in California, uh, which sort of muddies the waters with her image as a progressive, because uh, she's a very tough prosecutor on uh, drug cases, for example. Um, so there's a lot to look at there. Mike Pence, of course, has been a loyal vice president to Donald Trump. He is widely expected to run himself in 2024. Uh, you know, Pence is a pretty good speaker. He's pretty good at policy. Uh, I don't expect there to be a lot of vulnerabilities there. It'll be really fun to watch him debate Kamala Harris. That's such a contrast in styles and approach. Um, you know, that, that one will be hard to referee, I think, uh, when that comes up. So it's August 26th. The race is beginning to take shape. There's a lot we can chew on, uh, but boy, there's a lot to be decided yet as we uh, get to the finish here. So we'll see. Um, I'll uh, keep checking in with you. We'll, we'll have some interesting uh, casts coming up 
as we go, and uh, we'll see where the race takes us from here. Good to be with you. I'll see you next time. Bye.